0: people come to the street and make bonfires with veils. That is not just a political and religious taboo. It's also a cultural taboo. But when international
1: coverage frames the protests in Iran as simply anti-hijab, it misses the point. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Also this week, how a toxic internet forum terrorized folks by mining their freely available data and hounding them on and offline.
2: Those places can exist and be armies, and then the speech of regular people in this country, citizens of this country, is quashed because they can't fight the army. Plus, the once and
1: future YouTube. This
2: is how I start my makeup routine. Sometimes I pluck my eyebrows, I pick at my skin first. I don't know why I do that, but we're going to skip
1: that. From silly videos to total
3: media domination, it's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue.
4: WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Michael Loewinger is joining me this week. But first, this.
4: Huge protests in Iran over the death of 22-year-old Masha Meany, who died after being arrested by Iran's morality police. Iranian Iran. authorities saying she was arrested for allegedly violating
1: the country's strictly enforced Islamic dress code. On Wednesday, Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, addressed the nation on live TV nearly two weeks after Masa Amini's death. He condemned the chaos on the
4: streets, and when asked
1: about possible legal reforms...
4: Mr. Raisi said, sure, we're open to reform, but we're not open to changing our values.
1: One human rights group claimed that roughly 76 peaceful protesters have been killed by security forces that continue to fire into crowds and beat and harass people.
2: Taking off their head coverings and waving them in the air,
4: this is defiance
2: in Iran. And women are leading the charge. Some are even burning their hijabs, their mandatory
1: head coverings in protest. As the protests continue to unfold, one sensitive question hangs in the air. Will this current wave of protests be any different from the ones that came before? Fatima Shams, a Persian poet and professor of Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania, is among many who say this could be a George Floyd moment for Iran.
0: It took a 17-minute video to go viral for the people to rush to the streets and create that historic moment in the United States and across the world, in fact. With the picture of Masa Amini, there is a similar pattern in the sense that there is a hundred years struggle for women's rights behind it. And there were similar moments in the past Four decades, in fact, where women were subject to state violence Mm -hmm. and police brutality over and over and over again. We have been watching these videos coming out of Iran. And this particular picture was just a watershed moment. It's a moment of mobilization and uh, unity because a lot of Iranians feel that Massa could be their daughter. Massa could be their sister. Massa could be their mother.
1: So on June 20th, 2009, there was another killing that galvanized protest in Iran, and that was the death of 26-year-old Neda Agha Sultan, shot by a government sniper on the sidelines of a peaceful protest for fair elections known as the Green Movement you were at the protests that followed her death. And I just wonder, are there any analogies that we can draw between these two women and the movements they've spawned?
0: Uh, yes. Back in 2009, Neda Agha Sultan was coming back from her music school with her music teacher and found themselves in the middle of the protests. A seemingly apolitical woman randomly shot, her eyes rolling towards the camera while she's dying, and then the video going viral. There is also this element of innocence that you can see in the face of both women killed in cold blood that has played an extremely important role in mobilizing and triggering the protests. Mm -hmm. In the case of Mahsa Amini, I would also add that she is not just a middle-class Tehrani woman coming back from her music school. She's coming from a border city of the Kurdish province of Iran, one of the most deprived, neglected provinces since the victory of the revolution, discriminated against for being part of an ethnic minority, for being part of a religious minority. Mm -hmm. So she's traveling to Tehran with her brother and she's only in the capital city for a few days and coming out of the metro station and suddenly being stopped by the morality police. These details add to this brutality of course, media plays an extremely important role in the George Floyd moment and also in Massa Amini moment. The reason that these two are being compared is because they really have become the face of a much more complicated civil rights movement. You suggested that if Neda
1: hadn't been killed brutally, the Green Movement would have gone in a different direction. Same thing if Massa's death hadn't been documented which is why the internet has been so crucial in all of this.
0: Absolutely. Over the past 13 years, since the rise of the Green Movement, Iranian citizens have become remarkably smart with their smartphones. They know that recording scenes of violence, scenes of oppression, and posting it on the social media will get their voice out. This is something that did not exist before the rise of the Green Movement. The televisation of the death of Neda Agha Sultan was basically the reason for not just triggering the nationwide protests, but also raising awareness in the international community. And in the past 13 years, every single time that there is an uprising, that there is a riot, normal, ordinary Iranian citizens take up their phones and start filming. That's
1: why the government has worked in the last more than a decade to really get a grip on it.
0: When Neda Agha Sultan was killed, they tried for months, in fact, and years to manipulate and distort the story of her killing. They accused that doctor who rushed to Nada's body trying to revive her. They tried to arrest him. He had to flee the country, accused him of being the agent of the West to go there and assassinate her. Nobody, of course, believed it. And they're doing the exact same thing with the death of Masa Amini. The person who broke that story was Nilou Farah Hamidi,
3: mm-hmm. an
0: Iranian woman journalist who courageously rushed to Kasra Hospital in Tehran and interviewed Masa's father, took those pictures. And broke the story. And she's in custody at the moment. Mm -hmm. The government panicked and tried to give a distorted image of what happened. Yeah. I mean, even literally a distorted image, right? Yeah. So they published this heavily edited CCTV footage in which she collapses suddenly in the middle of the police station and say that she had a health condition and she was not beaten on the head. Two things here that was very important. One, the brave action of Nilou Farah Hamidi, the Iranian journalist who went to the hospital, interviewed Mahsa's father, and he said that my daughter, she was a perfectly healthy woman, and these claims that she had brain surgery, she had a heart attack, these are all just lies. Well, Nilou Farah Hamidi was arrested after that. The second proof that discredits the government's claim was published by BBC Persian, in which a former Iranian Revolutionary Guard officer confirms, based on the news that has been leaked out of the system, the cause for Massa's death has been several blows on the head, Mm. brain injury, basically.
1: In both Gnedas and Massa's case, the government moved swiftly to crack down on any public display of grief, any memorial, a funeral, what is the significance of that historically?
0: Yes, and Thursday, the woman journalist Elohim Mohammadi, who went to Mahsa's funeral and covered the funeral, has been also arrested during the 1980s, where there was mass executions of the political prisoners the bodies were not even given back to the families. They were all dumped in mass graves. It happened in 2009, Neda's funeral and other people who were killed in those days and also during the 2021 protests. In the buildup to the 1979 revolution, when the revolutionary protesters were in the streets marching against the monarchy, When one or two protesters were getting killed in a city, in the 40th day anniversary of their death, protesters of another major city would actually take to the streets. Hmm. Then other two protesters would get killed, and the same pattern and the same chain of protest would happen across the country. Every 40th day? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. We saw in 1979, streets were the main scene where the revolutionary movement actually managed to succeed at the end. The government is very well aware of the fact that if they let the streets to be filled by the protesters, there is a potential for another revolution. Because what we have right now is a revolutionary movement. You,
1: you really think so? There was wave after wave of violent repression since the protests against the fraudulent elections in 2009, the Green Movement. Back then, you were a writer and activist, a student mm-hmm. at Tehran University. You took part mm-hmm. in the protests before fleeing the country. In a recent piece in the AP, you claimed that this time is different. But
0: why? How? So I tell you why. Um. I'm- One of the main features of any revolution is when there is a fundamental shift in the norms and values of the people who live under a given government. What we see today in the streets of Iran is basically the manifestation of that fundamental shift. Over the past 44 years, there have been, as you mentioned, and rightly so, there have been a chain of riots, protests, and economic and political grievances. But in neither of these protests, we see this fundamental shift, but also action against the state, people come to the street and make bonfires with veils. That is a red line, not just a political and religious taboo, it's also a cultural taboo. At no time, Iranian women actually took to the streets to burn what they consider to be the symbol of oppression. But you've said that it's really not about hijab. This is about compulsory hijab. This is about Mm -hmm. gaining control and ownership over women's body. This is in the heart of this revolutionary episode because the Iranian women and men who are protesting today know that the Islamic Republic is not ready for that transformation. The current president gave an interview about the ongoing protests saying that our values have not changed, that the treatment of women should change But our values are still the same. And when he says that the values are still the same, it means the values of the protesters is completely in contrast with the values of the government. And that's exactly what a revolution looks like.
1: You, among many people, have observed that women are in the forefront of the current protests more visible than they were 13 years ago as organizers, leaders and symbols as they publicly burn their hijabs and pay for that political expression in blood, you also say that the new generation of young women have a different imagination altogether from your generation, that even in your imagination, you didn't see a day where we could make bonfires with veils.
0: My generation was born and raised during the most oppressive decade after the revolution, under extreme political and economic pressures. Also during the post-war decade in the 1990s, where Iran was coming out of an eight-year bloody war and the death of the state patriarch, there was the rise of the reformist movement in mid-1990s. And then at the end of the 1990s, we had to also face this agonizing terror and fear of murder of secular intellectuals and writers. So for us, life was a matter of basic and minimum survival. We could not even imagine a day that basic rights would be at the forefront of a social movement. When the reformist president, Mohammed Khatami, came to power, Mm -hmm. there was hope for change. But the woman's right was always a follow-up, the follow-up of a revolution, the after effect Mm -hmm. of a revolution, the after effect of a social movement. But this revolutionary episode is also about a generational change. It's about those children who were born during the 2000s. This generation is different. You know, they are much more exposed to the outside world
1: through technology. Things that an earlier generation of, of women and men tolerated as just a part of life is no
0: longer tolerable. Exactly. Their symbols and their ideas and their belief and their norms is entirely different. And I think they found the courage to take to the streets. And the people of my generation, those who are trying to understand what's going on right now, all of us are just taken by surprise. And we really just hit our hat in respect. A lot of
1: correspondence from uh, Western news organizations aren't there because it is so very dangerous. Who is directing the story really for us? And how is it getting out? And what are we getting wrong?
0: You know, the way that this story has been framed in the Western media is that, first of all, I think one point should be that abolition of the compulsory hijab is at the heart of this movement. The far-right media in the West have framed this as an attack on Islam. They are framing the story in a way that could potentially harm those who live in the West as Muslims and especially veiled Muslim women who feel threatened by the ongoing protests in Iran. Mm. What should be clarified here in the Western media is that this is not an attack on Islam. This is not an attack on hijab as a belief. What is fought for here is freedom of choice not Mm -hmm. the hijab itself. Mm -hmm. There are millions of women in Iran who believe in a hijab, who observe hijab. And if this movement is successful, they will still continue to live with hijab. And none of those people who are in the street have any problem with this. Mm -hmm. Iran is a Muslim society. And in the past couple of weeks, we see that mothers are coming out with their daughters in the street, the veiled mother with their daughter without a scarf. So this is, you know, a, a shared cause. This is a shared pain. This is about suppression and oppression of women and stripping them off their basic rights. So I think that this has to be clarified in the media in the West mm-hmm. and frame the story in a way that Muslim women in the West also feel comfortable to stand in solidarity with their sisters inside Iran in order to get their rights back from the government. Fatima, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you for your time. Fatima Shams is a Persian poet and a professor of Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania.
4: Coming up, taking down an online troll farm takes guts and a big fan base. This is On the Media.
3: On the Media is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? z Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Z-Biotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. z breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to ZBiotics.com slash OTM to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's ZBiotics.com slash OTM, and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off.
2: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour.
1: This is On The Media.
4: I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Michael Loinger. This month we saw an unusually focused campaign to shut down one of the internet's most toxic forums. It's a site I expect, actually, I hope, you've never heard of.
3: We did it. We actually did it. So many people have tried for so long to do this and we actually got Kiwi Farms down.
4: That's Twitch streamer Clara Sorrenti, aka Kefels, celebrating the takedown of Kiwi Farms from the internet. The site's users had been harassing her for weeks.
3: The first thing that they did was find the obituary for my dead father.
4: Here's Kefels on CNN.
3: They were able to find a picture of my dad on the front porch of my childhood home and from that, use Google Maps and figure out where that was located. It started
4: earlier this year when anonymous users on Kiwi Farms began targeting Keffels for being a trans woman and for speaking out against anti-LGBTQ laws. Stalkers repeatedly doxed her and her family members and left them threatening voicemail messages like this one.
0: Saved
1: message, 1.30, 1 p.m.
5: Well, your personal information got posted all over the internet, and I'm just letting you know that someone's special has for you. Don't worry, nothing bad is going to happen. Just a friendly reminder. Have a nice day.
4: Harassment campaigns against all sorts of people became the site's raison d'etre. Its founder, Joshua Moon, had cut his teeth as an administrator on 8chan, a forum notorious for coordinating hateful online attacks, like those on female gamers and critics during Gamergate but Kiwi Farms made it even easier to amass information on its targets.
2: 8chan or 4 those self-delete after two or three days. There are other sites that archive them, but it's not searchable. It's not easy to find this stuff. Kiwi Farms was a database for all the perceived enemies on the far right.
4: That's Ben Collins. He's been following the Kiwi Farms story for NBCnews.com.
2: Basically, it was a place to collect everybody's information. They would do things like call a trans person's boss, and tell their boss that this person's a
4: pedophile, and why are you employing a pedophile? Try to get them fired from their job. And Kiwi Farms users didn't stop at trying to get people fired. They called in bogus police reports, resulting in armed officers showing up to victims' homes. In other words, swatting them.
2: The end game is to use the state to try to terrorize or murder someone by calling in a false report,
4: and that's what swatting is. Keffles was swatted on August 5th.
3: I went out into the hallway. They told me to put my hands up. I thought I was going to die. I screamed, like, as soon as I saw the gun.
2: Someone sent a police tip that she was planning to shoot up the local city hall in London, Ontario. So she had to leave her apartment, and she took her cat with her. Once she got to the hotel where she was staying in London, Ontario, she took a picture of her cat. And there was a picture of bedsheets because the cat was on the bed. Kiwi Farms users found her hotel based on just what the bed sheets looked like in her hotel room. They sent her tons of groceries and pizza and started attempting to swat her at that hotel as well. So then she thought, I'm in grave danger here. I have to get out of this country. So she flew to Northern Ireland, Belfast. By using the picture of a doorknob in the background of a stream she did from Northern Ireland, they figured out where she was. And then within hours, someone was outside of her home in Belfast, with a picture of themselves in a note card saying they were from Kiwi Farms.
4: Until Keffels, it seemed like there was a conundrum for journalists, for extremism researchers, for victims of Kiwi Farms about what exactly to do, how to respond, because it was a pretty obscure website. And so the potential for driving traffic, new users to the site, was pretty high just by covering their harassment campaigns. And so what do you do? If there's no coverage, there's likely going to be no possibility for accountability. But if you do cover it, you're kind of just feeding the flames.
2: Yeah, you don't want to sand effect this, right? Part of the issue is, with anyone who was targeted, was that Kiwi Farms would index first on Google, if you search their names.
4: Hmm.
2: They had very good Google SEO. If you're an employer looking at someone's name and you open that up and that's what you see, you're not gonna wanna associate with that person anymore. That is the scary part of this whole thing is that they used the data centers that we have, the massive amount of data collected by these private companies as a weapon. And by the way, this happened with Claire. Her Uber account was hacked and then they had access to her every movement. They had access to where friends and family lived, where she got Uber Eats from, all that stuff.
4: When you hear one of these nightmare scenarios, you really are reminded just how much documentation there is on you at all times, thanks to voluntarily giving your information to apps and websites constantly.
2: If you're buying something from a website where things seem like a little bit too cheap, that data is probably being sold somewhere. Also, you probably haven't logged into Uber since like 2014 like most people have downloaded the app right yeah. and if you're doing that since 2014 your password was probably like password or something like there was no oh i see logged in i see logged mean. in physically logged into uber like no one has signed you out so you've been logged into that account since since you know you had very insecure passwords so that's probably how they got in there to begin with
4: one woman i follow on twitter who is a sex worker and a new york based academic she was talking about how you hear these horror stories and you say to yourself, I'm a privacy-minded person. Right. The people who are doxed, it's because they made a mistake at some point and they revealed too much about themselves. And this woman was saying that whoever doxed her on Kiwi farms says that they spent over 50 hours looking at her tweets for information about weather history wherever she was living. And then compared this to weather histories around New York and compared this against a list of New York-based college professors. I mean, that is like some extreme stalking behavior that no normal person is going to have any foresight to anticipate.
2: Right, and all it takes for you to get their ire is to disagree with them in some capacity. How did Keffels fight back? What did she do that was so successful? Because she had the ability to leave her home and flee twice, by the way, and she had a large fan base who were themselves an army, themselves trying to fight to make somebody else's life hell. She was able to fight back.
4: Part of her savvy seemed to come from knowing how to communicate with journalists. She set up dropkiwifarms.net. A lot of her followers went there. They helped get the hashtag dropkiwifarms trending on social media. There was really one company in particular that they needed to convince that Kiwi Farms was a serious problem, and that's Cloudflare.
2: Yeah, Cloudflare provides DDoS protection. So if your site is flooded with lots of traffic, or even like a modicum of traffic at this point, based on how large the web is, it helps basically organize that traffic so it doesn't go down. Not many service providers offer this, and they're the number one provider.
4: They help support something like 20% or more sites on the internet. They're kind of everywhere.
2: Yeah, that's why when 8chan was dropped from Cloudflare a couple years ago, they really didn't survive it. They had to rebrand, all this other stuff. Even their rebrand is not an easily accessible website. So Cloudflare for weeks resisted this. They initially just did not respond to anyone. They put out this big manifesto about how we have to leave up speech we don't agree with, all this stuff. I think it took them a lot of coverage, including potentially our story, which just identified how many people have died, how many people are in immediate danger to understand the threat here. And they realized the press wasn't gonna get any better once more people were aware of what the website was. That's really all it was. And then they pulled down the site saying there was an imminent threat to human life. They buckled it to peer pressure. That's really what happened Once people actually looked at the facts here of what this website existed to do, more people would be aware that they were hosting an anti-trans terror website. It, like, that's the thing, is like the conversation about this stuff has to catch up to the reality we're living in. Because otherwise, we're gonna live in a very dystopian panopticon where everyone's move is watched. Everyone's Instagram post is looked into in the background if they say something that is viewed as unacceptable. Currently, that is affecting trans people. But that can affect the rights.
4: Yeah, doxing was an art perfected by the anti-fascists of old. Yes. This is a, an, an instrument that can be used by anyone for any political purpose. That's exactly right.
2: And like, look, that's... <laughs> That's what I've been trying to say for a very long time now, and I, I really hope it gets through at some point. What's the best way of putting this? So there is this large collection of data on the internet that targets specific people, and you can use it to target anyone. So right now you have an option. You can take down this site that exists to harass people and you know, do it without consequence because there are no good ways of finding them. Those places can exist and be armies, and then the speech of regular people in this country is quashed because they can't fight the army. So right now we have more self-censorship because they are afraid of living their lives. They're afraid of doing normal stuff, taking a picture of themselves at like Disneyland or something, than the criminals are of stalking and harassing and attempting to murder people with swatting that they disagree with. So the speech implications here are not, should this website be up or not? It should be, do people get to live their lives on the internet? And do they get rights to speech that only armies have currently on the
4: internet? (sighs) So what do we do? How do we (laughs) mitigate this dystopic current moment? There are laws that you can pass, data
2: protection laws, that make it so you can't just trade around this data broker stuff. It would make journalists' lives harder. It would make it so figuring out if the guy who gave you a quote and event is who he says he is. Right now we can look up their phone number and be like, does that match? It would make our lives harder, but it would make it so dark data broker sites, places that sell data on top of the goods they sell. If you can ban those data brokers from making that public if it's collected without people's consent, it's a really good way of stopping this sort of data collection. It's not gonna prohibit it all, but you can at least make a dent here and just make it socially bad that you are stalking people out of the country and trying to get them killed with the use of police violence. Don't consider that speech.
4: Ben, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Ben Collins is a reporter covering disinformation, extremism, and the internet for NBCNews.com. Since we recorded this interview, Kiwi Farms has been hacked and it's gone up and down every few hours. Without Cloudflare's service, it's unable to remain online permanently.
1: Coming up, YouTube, once a pugnacious youngster, has now entered adulthood. But has it matured?
4: This is On the Media.
3: On the Media is brought to you by ZBiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zebiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zebiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to Zbiotics.com/oTM to get 15 percent off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zebiotics is backed with 100 percent money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
4: And I'm Michael Lowinger. To end the show, let's take a look at the best, the worst, the silliest, the dumbest, the most entertaining website on the internet. Charlie bit Me. Hey everyone, this is Kenji Lopez-Alta, I'm here at home. Today I'm going to show you how to make probably
5: the easiest pasta dish around, cacio e pepe. It's kind of like Italian. This is how I start my makeup routine. Sometimes I pluck
4: my eyebrows, I pick at my skin first. I don't know why I do that, but we're going to skip that part. And just go right into (laughs) it.
2: I was hitting some nasty shots, did you see that?
4: Serious video today. I was a loser. You know, I was that kid that sat at the table with three other people that were also like the super rejects. That was me. I got 100 of my subscribers and gave them each $10,000. And I also rented one of the largest malls in the world and locked them inside. These are facts, and facts don't care about your feelings.
5: Yeah, there was a survey that went out recently that it's like, more kids want to be professional YouTubers than astronauts. And everyone like, even I'm like, man, that's so lame. But then I was like, hold up. I quit my dream job at NASA to make YouTube videos, so I'm not really one to judge.
4: Today, YouTube is one of the biggest media companies in the world. In 2020, we uploaded 500 hours of footage to the site every minute. And on average, we watched over 5 billion videos every day. It's a broadcasting machine so complex it would make Marshall McLuhan's head explode. I've been obsessed with YouTube since I was 13, which is why I was psyched to speak with journalist Mark Bergen and read his new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. According to Bergen, the founders of the site originally envisioned something more akin to Tinder than homemade TV. And so
5: they thought that
4: maybe dating would be the way in? They thought sex appeal was the only reason regular people would want to upload videos of themselves to YouTube. They posted on Craigslist offering $20 to women who would vlog on their site. Google was launching
5: at the same time, Google Video, and one of the major reasons that it lost to YouTube is because Google just didn't think that people would want to watch non-professionals.
4: Google bought the site for $1.6 billion in the fall of 2006, right around when the first wave of YouTubers began reaching thousands of subscribers through their webcams. Early stars that Bergen spoke to pointed to the same piece of inspiration, Lazy Sunday, the SNL digital short featuring Andy Samberg and Chris Parnell.
0: Lazy Sunday,
4: wake up in the late afternoon. Call Parnell just to see how he's doing. Hello, what up, no Samberg, what's
5: It had this lo-fi quality. A lot of early YouTubers didn't have a lot of camera equipment or green screens, things to compete with big media.
4: There was also Smosh, a channel I watched a lot when I was in middle school. Two guys named Anthony and Ian, who acted out ironically bad skits.
1: You're going to do so well on your driving test, Anthony. I just know it. Now give mommy a kiss. (laughs) Mom, no.
4: The most subscribed channel for a while was run by this guy Ray William Johnson, who curated viral videos with edgy commentary.
2: You know, the laws of the internet say that when you film
4: yourself doing something even somewhat dangerous, you're supposed to fail so we can all laugh at you. And then there were the vlog brothers, featuring Hank Green, a charmingly dorky science teacher, and his brother John Green, who is now known as a best-selling YA author.
5: Hello, John. By now you have received my message that we will no longer be communicating through any textual means. No more instant messaging, no more emailing. Only video blogging. That was a new form of entertainment that these trailblazers were inventing.
4: But at the end of the day, many of them were just hobbyists. That changed in 2007, when people like Hank Green from the Vlogbrothers started getting emails from new sites saying stuff like, we'll pay you to leave YouTube and join us. I remember reading these emails and being like, whoa, you mean that I could potentially be getting paid for this? Green discussed this moment in a recent video.
5: YouTube saw this as a tremendous threat, I think correctly. And they created the YouTube Partner Program, the one decision in the history of online media that has changed things more than anything else. Every advertisement that runs on a video on a creator's page, 55% is going to go to the creator. In 2020, YouTube made around $20 billion. Ten billion of those dollars went to creators. YouTube was extremely early in the creator economy in this profession that didn't exist before. At the same time, YouTube was came really late to the ideas of what they kind of called user generated content would actually be commercially successful. So for the first several years of the company, they actually went out and tried to recruit Shaquille O'Neal, Madonna, Tony Hawk, these like well known celebrities, and basically tried to turn A listers into YouTubers. And I think there's always been this discrepancy between what people inside the company hope and wish for the platform to be and what it really is.
4: One conversation around YouTube that I don't feel has really caught up to where it needs to be is like around kids content. The platform radically altered how kids watch and what they watch.
5: Because of the Children's Online Privacy Act, they didn't want to reach viewers under 13. And so they built this app, YouTube Kids, designed to be like this playground for kids under 13. This was a
4: discrete app that was kind of like that's a right. walled off version of the site. <sighs> or at least that's how it was marketed. Right. A lot
5: of parents assumed that meant that they were curating the videos and they weren't. Children were watching unsupervised in the main app. People were going to YouTube and searching for Frozen. They were searching for Spider Man. They were searching for Elsa. And so you had a lot of creators just rushing to make content related to these popular trends. And then there were a lot of channels that started to take it into very strange directions, either live action or animation, and like put Elsa and Spider Man in sexual situations. Elsa Gate was a name for after that. YouTube in the fall of twenty seventeen took a pretty extreme action and just like deleted thousands of channels and videos.
4: I almost feel like the problem is more pernicious and more subtle than disturbing, violent videos that your kid may or may not ever see. YouTube heavily rewards a certain kind of kid's content. If you pull up SocialBlade.com or one of these sites that mm-hmm. ranks YouTubers, if you get on that list, the largest American channel by subscriber count is Cocoa Melon. Coco Melon. A nursery rhymes channel. Shoes, shoes, it's time to wear your shoes. If you keep going down that list, there are tons of other kids' channels.
0: Like Nastya.
4: Like Nastya. Hi,
0: Nastya, I'm ready for a sleepover.
4: Kids' Diana Show. Yay! Vlad and Nikki. Oh yeah. Some of the biggest channels on YouTube, period, are kids' channels. That's totally right.
5: They built the world's biggest kids entertainment service really without trying, and without acknowledging it for a long time. I mean, one thing that's important to remember is that American television does have rules and regulation around kids content, right? There's a certain amount of educational programming that has to happen. You can't have promotional materials inside the programs. You have to make it very evident and clear when there's a commercial and when it's not. None of that exists on YouTube. And, you know, there have been criticisms of some of the most popular channels on YouTube that they are effectively running 15, 20 minute long commercials.
0: This video features Ryan's World
1: toys that Ryan helped create. So this is Ryan's robot. Well, you can move all the joints. So that's really cool.
5: YouTube Kids has changed pretty dramatically because they were regulated from the Federal Trade Commission in 2019.
4: They were fined $170 million dollars. Yeah. The largest fine ever, and that was for violating, uh, Kappa. That's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. You listed off a lot of those popular channels.
5: I think the major point is they're very understudied and underscrutinized. Like I've struggled to find researchers who spend their time, with like childhood development and psychology expertise, that like watch a lot of these popular YouTubers and unpack really what's happening in the videos. And I think that's something that really needs to change, since there's an entire generation that's being raised not on television but on YouTube.
4: In his book, Mark Bergen writes about this phrase that was often repeated inside the company, joke, threat, obvious, which explains the three phases of growth in a successful startup. Early on, YouTube was perceived as a joke. People in the press and in Silicon Valley would refer to it as the site where people go to watch videos of dogs skateboarding or whatever. Nowadays, skipping ahead, YouTube is obvious. It's obviously the place where long-form video lives. But in that middle phase, YouTube was considered a threat to so many different kinds of people. Copyright holders, it was sued by Viacom for a billion dollars. It was a threat to parents, as we've discussed, a threat to advertisers, which we'll get to in a minute, and a threat to the news media. Bergen describes the moment that TV news realized that YouTube could deliver something it couldn't. What he describes as YouTube's Edward R. Murrow moment.
5: Television wasn't really considered like a serious medium until Murrow started to show this like very visceral footage of the Korean War.
1: This is Korea. This is the front. Just there, no man's land begins. And on the ridges over there, the enemy positions can be clearly seen.
5: YouTube and social media had that same effect. During the Iranian revolution in 2009, people were taking like grainy cell phone footage of the protests in Iran, and it was coming out on YouTube, not on cable TV.
4: And you mentioned this moment of a cnn producer calling youtube and asking like how they'd gotten all this footage from iran
5: right so much of youtube's expansion globally in their first few years was fighting to stay alive thailand turkey pakistan threatened or or at times blacked out youtube and the company back then had a much more aggressive stance on like opposing the demands of governments, even from the u.s government
4: YouTube was confronted with a responsibility that it seems like it maybe never meant to have, which is deciding which kinds of speech should be kept up. You wrote about this meeting in 2016 where YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki was bombarded with complaints from female creators on the platform about the amount of harassment they received in the comment section, which we all know can be a special pit of hell. And also harassment from other YouTubers. In 2019, the company rolled out stricter moderation policies aimed at reducing this type of misogyny. But even this month, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a British nonprofit, found that harassment against women on the platform is still pretty rampant.
5: What was really interesting about that harassment policy is like they kind of initially wrote in this loophole and we can allow criticism and potentially offensive things being said about public figures. But then, you know, YouTube as a platform was invented to like turn anyone into a public figure.
4: Anyone who turns the camera on themselves is a public yeah, figure.
5: That's right. They have an exemption for satire, but then in their rule book you can't after the post is... On up and say oh, I was just joking, which just happened all the time, and and like YouTube has struggled with this. In their defense, like it is a very hard problem to identify what's satire and what's bullying. I'm not excusing them. Like this is a problem that they created, and probably a very foreseeable one.
4: The company has had evolving policies around removing content that has extreme violence, depict hate groups, terrorist recruitment videos. But you describe moments where it felt like enforcement was a bit ad hoc.
5: A critical turning point was ISIS. And so 2014... ISIS was posting a lot of propaganda and extremely violent, beheading videos on YouTube. And particularly in Europe, Google was just berated for hosting and propagating ISIS propaganda. And so the company in 2017 decided, okay, we're not going to just remove these videos, but we're going to remove the rhetoric behind this and basically remove the ideology. And they took a very strict and strong stance against Islamist terror and ISIS. My reporting shows that there were people inside YouTube that thought, Basically, we're only applying this to one particular radical group. We're not applying the same tools and policies against, in particular, white nationalists and white supremacists.
4: This is such a classic dynamic in American politics where no one bats an eye at censoring Islamist extremism. But when it comes to like our American brand of extremism, it's so much more fraught. YouTube will say
5: that, listen, we're following governments here. Like, they look to the UK and US terrorist registries, and it's easier. There are actual lists that YouTube follows. This month in September, YouTube announced that they're finally going to start expanding their definition of violent extremism beyond terrorist registries.
4: The company's reluctance at times to play speech police came to a head with a giant controversy that we now call today the adpocalypse. It started when journalists in the U.K. and the U.S. began to document instances in which YouTube's automated ad system had placed commercials on extremist content. For instance, a Wall Street Journal reporter found a Crest advertisement on a video titled, A 6,000-Year History of the Jew World Order. In effect, Crest was paying the YouTube channel that uploaded that video. Naturally, a lot of companies freaked out.
2: Major brands like Pepsi, Starbucks,
4: and Walmart. Uh,
5: Verizon, Johnson & Johnson, these big companies, they've just found out that their ads are being played before some pretty offensive content, and they want it to stop.
4: The brand said, we're not advertising on YouTube until you fix this, and eventually they did. But the boycott caused two things to happen. YouTube started aggressively demonetizing all kinds of videos, in some cases, taking ads off of high-quality videos that didn't appear to have anything explicit in them. And two, it caused revenue for many creators to plunge. The ad
2: There's not enough ads to go around on YouTube for everybody. Many of my videos are making like
4: 20% of what they were just one week ago. This event changed the landscape of YouTube, and every creator to this day still feels the backlash. This triggered a massive crisis of faith.
5: Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it, it was a year later that there was a troubled YouTuber came in with a gun and shot their campus because of the policies. So, like, it had real ramifications that, like, hit home it's become a little bit more stable for the top tier of YouTube creators. But there are a lot of creators who aren't in that category. They have no guarantee that tomorrow they'll be making the same amount of money or any money at all.
4: Toward the end of your book, you pose this question that had been articulated inside the company. Which YouTube? Or maybe put another way, whose YouTube? Meaning like, What version of this site do we want to make? What do you think is so important about that question?
5: For one, it speaks to this interesting tension inside the company between what it sees itself and how it actually is. I think it's a bigger question of like what do we want from this very powerful media platform? One executive at YouTube kind of talks about how they accidentally built this repository for like human memory, like a human brain. Whose brain and whose collective memory are we uploading into this, right? It's not reflective of all of us.
0: Yeah.
4: Is it a brain? Is it our memory? I almost feel like it's something entirely different. It might shape our behavior, but to see it as a one-to-one library, I feel like that's almost kind of dishonest. And in fact, in the conclusion of your book, you quote one longtime YouTube executive who's responding to, like, the constant barrage of criticism. This person says, don't blame the mirror. And I'm like, is YouTube a mirror? Do you think it's a mirror?
5: No, I don't think so. I mean, like, in the simple version, if it was a mirror, it would have a lot more porn. You know, (laughs) like, it doesn't reflect all of humanity. we can be thankful in some ways it's no longer a mirror to health information. There are certain types of health videos that are no longer allowed on the site and that's probably good for public health reasons during the pandemic. It is no longer a mirror of all the spectrum of ideology in the world and like do we want a 30 billion dollar advertising business to be running white supremacy? There's an expression inside YouTube. The audience is king and that gives them this idea that, you know, the algorithm and what's watched and popular is is us. We're the ones dictating the direction to go. And I think that's partially true, but I actually think, as my book shows, the company plays a very significant role in, in not just what we watch, but what's actually made.
4: Mark, thank you very much.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great combo.
4: Mark Bergen is a reporter at Bloomberg and the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. YouTube may not be a mirror, but when I look at it I do see something grim staring back at me. And it's not my made-for-radio face, it's an attention economy that's grown to an incomprehensible scale while journalism is faltering. I see videos of a teenage gamer in his bedroom, reaching more viewers than a deeply reported article in the New York Times. And I'm not complaining about that. My industry could learn from YouTube how to build broader communities for what we provide. We once treated it as a joke, and still treat it as a threat. Maybe it's time to embrace the obvious.
1: Michael Lowinger is OTM's correspondent that's the show on the media is produced by eloise blondio molly schwartz rebecca clark calendar candace wong and suzanne gaber with help from tamie george our technical directors jennifer munson our engineers this week for andrew nerviano and adrian lilly katya rogers is our executive producer on the media is a production of wnyc studios i'm brooke gladstone